The following podcast is a production of The Network. Check us out on BICBP-radio.com. I am Johnny. Johnny. <laughs> okay, Austin, I'll let you fill in the blanks. Uh, this is like a Mad Libs. I am Johnny Townsend, and I am joined by my co-host with the most most, Christopher Chavez. <laughs> is that how you say your name? <laughs> Christopher. 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 A little inflection at the end, yeah. like I'm like Stewie you're, Griffin. Like you're from Sweden or something. Christopher. <laughs> Uh, thank you for joining us. We very much appreciate each and every one of you. Beautiful, stunning, gorgeous. Uh, just giving me eye orgasms. Sorry for that. Uh, listeners. <laughs> I need to get out more. Creepers uh, give you eye orgasms. <laughs> yes. <laughs> My eyes, it's either that or I'm just crying a lot, but you know, it's 2020. It could be a combination of both. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, <laughs> Welcome to another edition of That's Odd, where Chris and I bring you wonderfully gorgeous, stunning, <laughs> eye-orgasmic stories. Well, I don't even want to say that because I know what mine's about. That is terribly a horrible way to uh, <laughs> to describe <laughs> it. Yes. <laughs> so, pretend I didn't do that. Uh, but we're bringing you I'm some not, odd stories. No, just, oh, I want you to leave it all. <laughs> I need to learn from my mistakes. <laughs> uh, we've obviously, uh, it's uh, Chris. It's a trying time, twenty twenty. But the one bright side is that we're on the verge of leaving this year. <laughs> finally, uh, yes. we can see uh, we're coming towards the end of the year. Um, thankfully, right? Uh, you know, a, a bit of good news. Of course, we're all kind of you know, stuck indoors for the most part, except for like essential workers and such, because of this virus actually getting worse all of a sudden. Well, actually, we all know why, but, you know. Yeah. But New York's about to go in lockdown again. We're yeah. literally on the verge of being locked down for a second time. They're thinking it's going to be a shorter time this time around, but everybody's just like, oh, really? All over again? Yeah, it's, man. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> however, in my beautiful county in which i live that i honestly adore and i probably shouldn't because they posted on their official government facebook page that the perfect time for them to do this is now and that is to have a co-ed adult kickball team league uh and it's gonna <laughs> and not only will it not only will it start virtual not only will it start now, no, it's all taking place in one place at one of the parks. Uh, so not only will this amazing event uh, be, uh, you know, a, during the virus, it's also during the dead of winter. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I know it gets force everybody to live in the bubble like the NBA. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean. They're not allowed to leave the 
the grounds. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, that's exactly what's going to happen. Uh, but what's even more funny to me is literally I saw uh, it had to be a good handful of people that I went to school with uh, who are all like, I can't wait to do this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, don't um, get me wrong. If it kickball was sounds fun. Time, yeah. Right. If it was summer, uh, yeah. if we weren't in the middle of a pandemic. I am so down for kickball leagues. Yeah. Let's yeah. Start yeah. them up. Kickball sounds to, fun. I yeah. want them on the level of the teams that are in the movie of dodgeball. Like I want to oh, see, yes. I want to see Ben Stiller out there, you know, pitching a kickball. Yeah. We want to see like some people who are taking it way too seriously. Exactly. That's what we really want. That's when it's more fun. I kind of want to be one of those. To watch it. It's way more Come fun on, to watch Karen, it. Karen, pick up your knees. <laughs> pick up your knees. <laughs> it's like uh, one of my favorite things. Well, it wasn't my favorite at the time, but I look back on it fondly is when I would go to the local rec to me, and that's where I'd play pickup yeah. basketball. And there's always at least one person who's taken this pickup basketball game way too seriously. <laughs> and uh, as in legit getting heated over things in a pickup basketball game. They're the ones that like intense check the ball. <laughs> yes. Let's go. Yes. Let's go. Come on. Yes. Now, in fairness, I don't like to lose either. And in, in fact, my friends like to bring up that time where I forced everybody to keep playing because my team would never win a game. So <laughs> <laughs> Until you won one. Yeah. So uh, so I'm no better than it, but it's really fun to witness it. Uh, but yeah, so that's what my county decided to do is to, you know, you know, I get it. Everybody needs something right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're all, uh, you, you know, it's like uh, the new generation of systems, you know, video game systems came out and yeah. Kotaku. Just which time, right? Yeah. Yes. And Kotaku, which is like a big video game website, decided to, and for their reviews of these new systems, to make them very, uh, I guess, political is the way I should say, and be like, you know, we should be really guilty about having these things during this trying time. And I'm like, dude, uh, people need stuff to <laughs> escape sometimes, you know? Yeah, seriously. <laughs> um, real quick, sidetracked. Speaking of video games, have you heard of this uh, handheld video game maker called Amber- Ambernick? Ambernick? Uh, I I do not know. Not off the top of my head. I'm going to tag head. you on the Instagram and to take a look at it. But it looks like what they did is they're creating like these handheld games. Uh, they looks like they made one that looks kind of like the, the Game Boy, old school Game Boy. One of them looks like, uh, I don't know, the way the, the, the Me works now. Is that what it's called? The, no. We, what is it? What's the new thing now? Switch. And then Switch. Sorry. Yeah. It's got the little screen with the little handheld things. Yeah. There's one, but it looks like it's an emulator. So it lo- it's loaded with all of the, it's, it's like, um, you know, uh, kind of like the Raspberry Pis, right? Yeah, but yeah. It but it has like, like a, uh, all yeah. high high end the way they make it with the controls and the screen and everything. I bet it's beautiful and cheap. Uh. It looks gorgeous. <laughs> it's gorgeous, <laughs> just um, like me. Uh, but this is, and cheap. you know, that is that's things that people are looking to do to just kind of just to pass the time, especially if if we're looking at another impending. You know, first of all, we're going into winter time. Not, you know, you're not doing much outside during the winter anyway. Maybe towards you. I don't know how cold and how you know miserable it gets. At least, but where I'm at, we're looking at where we're normally staying indoors now. But now you're being told you can't really go to parties, you can't have family functions. You know, you can't do these kinds of things. So people need things to spend their time. Yeah, uh, that's why we're here. Yeah, we're uh, we're told our our uh, our state was told. That for Thanksgiving we should have gatherings of less than like ten people, I think it was. That's all. And I saw, I saw a ton of people who were very upset about this and were like, literally giving the governor a finger over this. And I'm sitting here thinking, same. And I'm sitting here thinking, uh, 
I don't want 10 people over at my house anyway, even if there wasn't a pandemic. <laughs> I love how, like, <laughs> if it wasn't a pandemic, everybody's like, oh, Thanksgiving. I got to see Uncle So-and-so and yeah. Cousin nobody. So-and-so, right? <laughs> and, and this year you're being told you don't have to. And now it's like, well, you don't tell me. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I want to have a drama-filled day where I overstuff myself and watch football. That's what yeah. I want to have. <laughs> no, thanks, dude. Uh, I'm lucky, dude. Me and Aaron, ever since we got together, we've always done Thanksgiving, just her and I. We don't we do not do no. a big family thing. We don't go to her family. She doesn't come to my. We don't do that. We just, It's just her and I. We spend the entire day just hanging out. Get up, eat breakfast, watch the, the parade, uh, you know, start cooking food, play games throughout the entire day, nap. I mean, that's it. It's just an entire day of just hanging out. Um, so I'm good with that. I'm good with that limit. I got no problem with that limit. Yeah. Yeah. Chris and I may have a Zoom Thanksgiving together. That's what we're going to do. Go. There yeah. we go. That'd be nice to have a little nice Zoom Zoom Thanksgiving. Yeah. A um, Zoom given. But yeah, dude, like I said, you know, people need things to do, and that is why we're here. That's We're, we're making podcasts. We're not going to stop. We no. don't have to be in the same room. That's right. Even and we're not. On. Yeah. yeah. No. Not, nope, we're in the Zoom rooms. Zoom, Zoom, Zoom. I believe zoom. that's something else. Uh, they do not sponsor us yet. <laughs> no, oh, so I'm going to blop that out. We're on the <laughs> room. <laughs> oh, man, but this is that side, Johnny. We have a couple of, well, I, I have one story. You said you have a few that kind of fit into one category, really. Correct, yes. So uh, we'll let you end it to kind of bring us up on an up note. Not that mine's a down note, uh, but it is a, just a bit different. Um. Have you ever heard of the lady named Dorothy Eady, E-A-D-Y? I feel like it sounds familiar, but I couldn't tell you why. She was also known as Um Seti, uh, which sounds like it has some sort of relation to Yetis, but it does not. <laughs> yeah. It's like a very <laughs> um, fancy Yeti. I'm doing this. The, I'm doing this the real, real old school way, dude. Because I told you, I found some articles on her life. Because uh, the first thing I found was a BuzzFeed thing, and so I was like, okay, I got to look into this more. So I found a few articles, and then I looked at the Wikipedia, and I was like, ah, well, they wrote they wrote these articles just following the Wikipedia. So I'm doing the old school Wikipedia on Dorothy Eady. Dorothy Louise Eady was born in London in 1904 to an Irish lower middle class family, and she was the only child to that family. Here's the big thing that happens in her life. At the age of three, after falling down a flight of stairs, she began exhibiting strange behaviors, asking that she be brought home, quote unquote, brought home. So she fell down these stairs and banged her head pretty, pretty badly, you know, and then, you know, while she was recovering, like they said, she's asking to go home and they would tell her you're home. You, you, you are home. And she says, no, 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 this isn't my home. I need to go home. She also developed what's called foreign accent syndrome. So oh, crikey. She, she, <laughs> basically, now imagine waking up and then that's just how you talk. And to you, it's normal. But right. your parents are looking at you like, okay, you're going to drop the gimmick? What's happening? Well, you know, it's. Uh, I remember when I was in middle school, in our middle school, each year, like sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, each year we would take a, a big trip, like a like a multiple day trip. And one of the days was Washington, D.C., and obviously I enjoyed it because I like history, but uh, the big thing that came from it was, obviously, people up there talk different than people where I'm from, and uh, for whatever reason, just being around people who have a different dialect or different uh, 
accent than you do it will affect you for a little bit so days afterwards i was still kind of like it was still a part of my vocabulary so it was a weird combination of my southern plus that that is true uh, when aaron and i went to jamaica we stayed at uh one of the all-inclusive resorts the the sandals resorts and they are just there immerse you into like nonstop you have to say man all the time yeah man yeah man yeah man yeah man so that by the time we came back we were just saying it normal and it, after a while it was i went back to work and people would be like did you have a good time i'd be like yeah man i had a good time <laughs> like, <laughs> and it sounded like i was like being funny but it was it was ingrained because it was yeah. nonstop the f- crazy thing about dorothy Edie is is she wasn't around people with different accents right after hitting her head, she begins. Okay, so first she, we already know she's British. She's born in London, so she already to us she has a British accent. To her parents, she developed what could be considered a Middle Eastern accent. Where how old was she at this point? Like what? Uh, when she started developing the accent, yeah, roughly about four or five years old. Oh wow! Okay, when she started speaking more. It caused a lot of conflict in her early life. There was a lot of, of, of the things that I read talked about how like in school, kids would start to not want to hang out with her because she spoke differently. And she would constantly talk about that she's not in the right land. She doesn't belong in this land. Um, her Sunday school teacher requested that her parents keep her away from class because she had compared Christianity with ancient Egyptian religion. And at the time, you're talking the early 1900s, saying that is like... You can't say that. Like, the Egyptian yeah. religion is a heathen religion, you know? Blasphemy. Yes. She was expelled from the Dulwich school, uh, girls' school after she refused to sing a hymn because it called on God to curse the swart Egyptians. It says, it says here that she, her regular visits to Catholic Mass, which she liked because it reminded her of the old religion, were terminated after an interrogation and visit to her parents by a priest. So she's going to Mass, and she makes comments that this reminds her of the old religion, and the priest is like, what is wrong with you, right? You cannot do this. So here's the thing that, so here's another thing that happens. This is another big moment in her life. So she's roughly about, I believe she's like 10, 10 years old, right? During this time, her parents, they, and her go on a visit to the British Museum. British Museum is like the natural museum of history here. It's, it's a big time museum there. It's got all kinds of, you know, uh, displays and, and, and rooms. And, and um, so she sees a photograph in the New Kingdom Temple exhibits in this room and she screams out, there's my home. And they look at and the parents look at her like, what the heck is she talking about? And it's it's basically a picture of one of the these old excavations from the late late eighteen hundreds into the nineteen hundreds uh, of an old kingdom um, in in Egypt. And she starts crying and she's saying, you know, well, where are the trees? Where are all the gardens? Because you know, obviously, it's it's much older now. So the temple was that she was pointing uh, to was one uh, of a guy named Seti the first. He was the father of Ramses the Great. Um, she was she became very infatuated with the picture. She started running around the halls of the Egyptian rooms, saying that she's among her people. And then she would begin kissing the feet of of all the statues, going down and bowing down and kissing the feet of all the statues of the ancient Egyptians. Isn't that just like? What? Yeah, that's that's. That's. I mean, I don't know how like how I would react to that if I was the the parent, <laughs> you know, like that's gotta be like a weird, strange thing. Uh, obviously, especially exactly. I mean, like this this kid. I mean, she's still a child learning things, and uh, you know, even to be like four or five and talking with a different accent would throw me off. 
Yeah, exactly. After this first trip to the British Museum, dude, it was, that was it. She was hooked. Uh, she would take every opportunity she could to try to visit and and just just wander amongst the halls of the Egyptian rooms. She just wanted to be in the surroundings. She felt comfortable. She felt like she was home. And these were, you know, these were like it'd be like going to, you know, your grandmother's home after she passed. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not sure if she's passed, but if she, you know what I mean, like once once they you, you your grandparents pass or something, then you go back to their home and everything's still kind of there. There's this kind of like. It feels normal. It feels natural. Uh, and that's the feeling she got. Uh, there she eventually met a guy by the name of E.A. Wallace, uh, Ernest Alfred Thompson Wallace Budge. He was an English Egyptologist, an Orientalist, and the uh, philologist, philologist who worked for the British Museum. This guy looks at this young girl and is just like, he sees youthful enthusiasm. He's like, man, she loves this stuff. So he encourages her to continue studying it and to study hieroglyphics so that she could learn to read the hieroglyphics. Let's see here. It says that uh, she continued her studies of ancient Egypt at Eastbourne Public Library. When she was 15, she discovered uh, she described a nocturnal visit from the mummy of the pharaoh Seti I. So now here is where it starts to get even more bizarre. At 15, she says... She's starting to get visits from this the the uh, the ghost of this of this Pharaoh Seti the first. Her behavior, coupled with the sleepy uh, sleepwalking and nightmares, led her to be incarcerated in sanatoriums several times. Uh, when she left school at sixteen, uh, she visited museums and archaeolo- archaeological sites around Britain, facilitated by her father's investigations into the nationwide booming cinema industry. So. Um, she's traveling around with her dad and as she does so, she's visiting all of these museums and archaeological sites. At the age of 27, she began working in London with an Egyptian public relations magazine. Uh, there she starts writing a lot of pro-Egypt kinds of articles and she does, she's uh, an artist, so she started doing cartoons as well. And she meets her, who would be her first husband there, uh, this guy named Iman Abdel Megud. He's an Egyptian student. In 1931, she decides she's going to join him in Egypt and and end up marrying him, right? So the story goes as she arrives in Egypt, the second she gets off the plane, she dropped to the ground and kissed it and then announced that she was home and she was home to stay. <clears throat> um <clears throat> excuse me. He, you know, the family met his family met her and at first, you know, they they were really enamored with her. They loved her. They loved her enthusiasm, her love for their their culture. Uh but then she started to live the life of the ancient Egyptians. Like she would worship the old gods and she would do certain ceremonies for them that were done in the ancient times. And that really put off his family. It didn't, it didn't work out. Uh, and that friction ended up having them, you know, separate. Uh, it is during, during this time though, that she starts to get more nighttime visits by an apparition of Hor Ra. Couldn't tell you who Hor Ra is, uh, but this is the crazy part. These nighttime visions over a 12-month period, he starts to dictate to her who she was in a previous life. So the story took up around 70 pages of cursive hieroglyphic text, so she wrote it all in hieroglyphics. It described the life of a young woman in ancient Egypt called Bentrishit. Bentrishit? <laughs> That's how you say it. Be uh, that last part. <laughs> I'm, gonna call her, I'm just going to call her Benti. Right, uh, who had reincarnated in the person of Dorothy Edie. Um, Benty, uh, the name meant harp of joy, is described in this text as being a hum- of humble origin. Her mother, a vegetable seller, and her father, a soldier during the reign of Seti I. When she was three, her mother died, and she was placed in the temple of Qom el Sultan. 
because her father could not afford her. I saw that in a lot of the articles was this story that was supposed to be her origin. And it just made me think to myself, man, think about those times. Her father couldn't afford to own her. Isn't that weird the way they say that? Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Now, in, in fairness, children are very expensive. <laughs> they are. They are. So might as well just give them up when they get too expensive. Yeah. Uh, she was brought up there to be a priestess. When she was 12 years old, the high priest asked her if she wished to go out into the world or stay and become a consecrated virgin. In the absence of full understanding and without a practical alternative, she took the vows. So during the next two years as a as this, you know, consecrated virgin in this temple, she learned her role in the annual drama of Osiris's passing and resurrection, um, a, a role that only the virgin priestesses consecrated to Isis could perform. So one day the ruler, Seti I, visited and spoke to her. They became lovers, eating the uncooked goose, an ancient Egyptian term that has been compared to eating the forbidden fruit. So basically they did the the nasty when they weren't supposed to. Uh, when Benti became pregnant, she told the high priest who the father was. The high, so the high priest is like, yo, you cannot tell Seti the first that he's the father. Are you crazy? He is going to kill you. He informed her that the gravity of the fence against Isis was so terrible that death would be the most likely penalty at trial. So unwilling to face the public scandal for Seti, she committed suicide rather than face trial. So this young 17, 18-year-old girl in the past ends up committing suicide and would reincarnate later, supposedly, in this body of Dorothy Edie. She, after, after this came out, you know, the rest of her life, she would live in this town, um, which she ended up traveling to this town called Abydos, A-B-Y-D-O-S, Abydos. And she's, you know, she felt this is where I was from. Her, her past self, this was her town. This is where she was from. Um, you know, she was one of the, she was, she was part of the, this town, like the town people would look at her one of two ways. Like they looked at her, like they, they loved her, um, that, you know, she was, she was a little eccentric. She was weird because she acted like she was in the ancient times and, and, uh, but she still respected everybody's religion. She respected the Christian religion, the, the, the Christian Egyptians. She respected the Muslim Egyptians, um, she would observe Christmas with them. She would re- observe Ramadan with them. Um, but she would constantly continue to do, you know, all of her different prayers and all of her different offerings to different gods. It says that a lot of times she prayed, she made frequent offerings to the gods of ancient Egypt and would often spend the night in the Great Pyramid. Can you imagine that's where you're spending the night, like in the Great Pyramid? I mean, <laughs> I don't even, I couldn't even like fathom that. Literally one of the seven wonders of the world. Yes. Uh, she spent the night there. It was it was her home for a while. Uh, she became the object of village gossip because she would <laughs> could make. You, could you imagine if you live there now and like you had to give that like where Amazon just delivers? To you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That'd be amazing. Uh, that's got to be a drone delivery. Uh, yeah. during, so it says that each uh, she became the object of village gossip because she would make night prayers and offerings to Horus at the Great Sphinx. Yet she was also respected there uh, by the villagers for her honesty and not hiding her true faith in the Egyptian gods. Um, she became very close with a lot of the people there, and she got to a point where she, you know, they, somebody ended up building her a house. And part of the she, as she got older, you know, her her health was deteriorating. She had had she had a heart attack. Uh, she survived it, um, but she knew she was getting older, and you know, it, it 
at some point you get to an understanding that we're all mere mortals, right? At some point we're going to pass on. So in Egypt, she would not be allowed to be buried in any of the, of the, the graveyard, the graves they have, any of the the places that they bury people because it's either Muslim or Christian. And because she didn't fall into those, they wouldn't bury her there. So she literally created her own little burial tomb under her house, almost like the Egyptians in their pyramids, seriously decorated and everything. And people came and, you know, people from the town would give her things to help decorate it and, and, and to bring with her into the afterlife. When she ended up passing away, though, they did not bury her there. They refused to. They said that that's not okay, and they she it's unfortunate, but she ended up being buried um, in an unmarked grave facing. I feel I think it's like facing the west, the way they they did it. But she's out in that town, you know, basically on the outskirts, buried uh, in an unmarked grave. But the thing to me though was that this woman, I, I, I like I said, dude, this I really should have done this as a history crease because there's so much to this woman. She was really instrumental in a lot of the lives and a lot of the people of the the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. Uh, the Egyptologists, the people who were doing these ex- excavations and 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 all these discoveries. You know what I mean? She worked with a lot of so many of these these books that were written. If you go back and look, the acknowledgments, her name's included in a lot of them, including there's a uh, one is the famous one about the the, the pyramids of Giza. Uh, it's a very, very famous book by I can't I can't you know, I don't remember what it is off the top of my head. And I'm, I'm like scrolling through here, searching while the listeners listen to me ramble. Um, but, you know, it is it, a lot of these books, a lot of these publications, a lot of the things that came out during a lot of the discoveries and 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 uh, and search for for the antiquities really she was a part of um and all because she had these memories that how do you explain it right how do you really explain that they they said that in the town she was in that she did find the temple of seti and would say you know this is where the gardens were and this is where that and so when there was more excavations done later they did find that where she said the gardens were they were there the the thing that bothers me though is is like why was her grave unmarked? <laughs> that seems like maybe it's different there, and I'm just going from like a, a Western feel here, but uh, it feels almost like it's disrespectful because <laughs> yeah, I know it does uh, feel I, that way, right? Because I know in a lot of cultures and such, like if you've done something wrong, they'll throw you in an unmarked grave. Like that's a like that's a penalty for how you lived your life, type of thing. It is weird. So just see, from what I see, it's just more along the lines of it has to do with the religious part of it, I guess. Because I I guess isn't that a thing too now? Like if you're not Catholic, you can't be buried in a Catholic cemetery or something like that. Isn't that a thing? Yeah. I mean, even uh, even the church that I grew up in, it was all like people from the same, you know, who all went to the same church and stuff. So, I mean, I get that aspect of it, but you would still think like if they're not going to uh, her wishes, like they're not going to fulfill those, uh, despite the fact that she was apparently really, like, really loved there. I mean, they built her house for crying out loud. Yeah, uh, like why would you do that? Like, it seems unfair to me. Yeah, it says specifically here because the Muslims and Christians could not let a heathen, quote unquote, heathen, be buried in their graveyards. She built her own underground tomb decorated with a false door, which is what a lot of the the Egyptians would do so that it would, yeah. you know, you know, dis- dissuade uh, grave robbers. Um, it says also that, you know, on April 8th, uh, 10th, 1981, she gave away her two cats as her condition deteriorated. On April 15th, she received a, a letter confirming that she had been enrolled in the Fellowship of Isis, an interfaith spiritualist movement focused on the goddess. 
On 21 April 1981, she died in Abydos. The local health authority refused to allow her to be buried in the tomb she had constructed, so she was interred in an unmarked grave facing the west in the desert outside of Coptic Cemetery. So she's right outside the cemetery. I wonder how many are unmarked outside of cemeteries yeah. that, you know, because they can't be within the, I don't know, consecrated fencing. I don't get it. Like, at least mark their grave, though. I mean, kind yeah. of just put like who they were. Yeah, I mean, it's not yeah. that hard. But overall, dude, yeah, like I said, her in her influence and her help and a lot of her expertise helped inform a lot of the research uh, in Egyptology back in the day. And um, it all stems from this fall from when she's three and all of a sudden she felt she was from another world. Can you imagine that? Like you said, it's how bizarre would that be? I mean, you have nieces, nephews, right? Imagine going to a, a museum and then all of a sudden something switches in them and they're just like, this is who I was. This is me, you know, and, and you'd be like, yeah. <laughs> quit playing around. Yes. yes. Well, you know, it's, it's just like, I think we've all had a situation where uh, even if you're on vacation or something and you're visiting somewhere like you've never been before, like you just, it just feels like a place that, you know, yeah. I mean, I've had that happen before deja vu and all that kind of yeah, thing. So, weird. yeah. All right. Well, that was very interesting, dude. Very much yeah, so. 1904 to 1981. Quite a life, man. Quite a life. Oh, yeah. So I decided that since we're living in the dark timeline, as a lot of us think, uh, we need some we need some uh, true stories that happened of of lights in the darkness. And I don't want to brag, but I have notes. <laughs> do it. Do it. Uh, handwritten, even. That's how I roll. Oh, beautiful. So, of course, one of the worst things to happen in human history was the Holocaust. But I, I mean, I highly doubt anybody's going to argue that. Uh, you know, so many people lost their lives, and it's very, very tragic. Um, but, however, during this terrible time of the Holocaust, there were, there are countless, I mean, I only have three people here, but there are countless people who would risk their lives to save others uh, during the Holocaust. And I'm going to bring up three today. I highly recommend looking into all these three plus some other ones i mean there's so many stories that are very uplifting uh so the first one we're going to do of course is when it's well well known uh he's so well known that in 1993 steven spielberg released a movie based on him called schindler's list mm -hmm. so the first one is oscar schindler um he was a member of the nazi party uh so you know we're automatically going to assume he's a bad guy right nazi equals bad obviously yeah. Have you uh, did you see Schindler's List? Yes, a long time ago. Oh, yeah. I've never seen it. It's obviously it's quite good, but it's a yeah. it's a tough watch. Uh, not because it's not good, but because of you know it's, I mean, it's real stuff that happened. Subject just, matter, yeah, yeah. Um, he was a member of the Nazi Party, and he actually was a spy for the Nazis. That's what he would do. He would go to like uh, I think it was like Czechoslovakia and other countries and spy and bring back intel for the Nazis. And, and it was during this time when he was doing this type, uh, type of work that he went to Poland in 1939, and he actually would buy a factory there in Poland. And this factory came with around a thousand Jewish workers. Like that's uh, that's the number they think uh, that worked for this factory. <laughs> Is that in the deal too? Are they like you buy a factory, you get a thousand workers? Then <laughs> they're with it. <laughs> it honestly might be. I mean, I don't know. They, did stuff kind of different back then. Uh, but then for five years after this, Schindler would work to ensure the safety of his workforce. Uh, and he would do this by, uh, you know, he would uh, actually, one of the things he would do is he would use the black market 
to bribe Nazi officials. I mean, he had a lot of, I mean, he was a Nazi, so he had a lot of connections to start with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was able to keep quite a few of them from the concentration camps. Uh, he was actually able at one point, thanks to his connections, able to actually move his entire factory. Cause as Poland, of course, was getting more and more captured. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, that's one of the places Hitler went for, he was able to move his factory out of there. And when he did this, he actually made a list of about 1200 Jews to take with him. This would ensure their safety because they were going to go with him. Wow. And actually to do this, he spent his entire fortune. Uh, he had had a lot of money at this point, and he actually spent almost all of it to ensure their safety and his and his own family's safety. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, that was it came at a huge cost, obviously. And that's kind of the, obviously there's a lot more you can look into it. I highly recommend the movie Schindler's List. Uh, but again, it's not an easy watch. I think most yeah. people would agree there. Uh, number two, the second guy we're going to talk about is, hopefully I'm pronouncing his first name right, and I'm very, very sorry if I'm not, is Raoul Wallenberg. Uh, Mr. Wallenberg was a Swedish architect, a diplomat, and a businessman. And in 1944, he was actually Sweden's envoy to Budapest. And this means he's responsible for uh, giving out and, uh, you know, and giving passports. That's one of the things that he did. Okay. And this is when he would start to issue, and they said the number was, was at least 650, passports to any Jewish person who had any sort of connection to Sweden. So he would, he's saving their lives doing this. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, he also, he even went a step past that. I mean, if he just did that, that's enough, but he went past that and he actually would uh, hide and shelter, uh, Jewish people in 32 buildings, including two hospitals and even a Swedish government owned soup kitchen. Like he would hide them in there. Wow. And he gave around 4,500 Jews a protective letter, which this is a big deal here, which kept them from slave labor and actually was even, uh, they weren't even required to wear that yellow Star of David. Really? I didn't even know that was a thing. They could have a letter that kept them from having to do that? Yeah, because uh, if if you know your history about World War II, that's one of the biggest things that they were able to identify Jewish people is yeah. they would make them wear this yellow star, David, you would have to wear it if you were Jewish. And it was huge, dude. If you look at pictures, I mean, it's these oh, monster yeah. on the lapels right in the front. You know, you, you you can't miss it. Yeah, it's no hiding it at all. Uh, but he was able to get this letter out and protect them from having to wear that. I mean, that's wow. that's huge. That is huge. However, his story does not end well. Uh, in 1945, he is detained on suspicion of spying, and he's never seen or heard from again. Oh, they ne- no. nobody knows exactly what happened to him. There are a lot of theories. Like one of them was he was put into like a like a Russian. You know, Russians actually had a, uh, a like a labor camp too. That's very very infamous where a lot of people died. They think he was he was stashed wow. there. Uh, but either way, he was never seen or heard from again. That uh, sucks. Yeah. So uh, the last person we're going to talk about is Nicholas Winton. This man is a British human, uh, humanitarian. I must say humanitarian. That's he's a British humanitarian. Uh, in 1938, he would actually go on to create an organization that would aid Jewish children who were at risk from Nazis. Like that was his main goal. He wanted to help the kids, and he Wait, would you do mean, that like from from like being captured by Nazis or like from turning it. You know what I mean? Like 
save them from becoming Nazis. We're talking about uh, saving Jewish Jews, right? Jewish Jewish okay. kids. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Okay. Jewish children. Uh, he would work to allow any refugee under seventeen legal entry into Britain, and he gave them. And even once they're there, he didn't just stop. He would give them a place to stay and a little bit of money. Uh, that's a huge deal. Like, obviously, Britain was not a. I mean, they didn't have bombings and such from mm-hmm. Germany, but they were never actually officially, you know, taken over by Germany. It came close though a few times, right? And he would actually go on to write other politicians in other countries, trying to get them to also take refugees. Uh, but one of the things I saw was really sad was like, well, there's only a few countries that would do this. Um, like Sweden, obviously, was one of them that would. And we already kind of talked to them before. Uh, they think some were in the United States, but it wasn't official. They didn't want anybody to know that type of deal. Um, and it's thought that he would that he saved around like this is a, just a number they throw out at least six hundred and sixty children, and that's a huge wow. deal. Yeah, yeah. And the reason that I brought this guy up, you can look this up. This is on YouTube, and I highly recommend you do. Uh, it'll make you cry, but it's a good cry. It's not a sad cry. It's actually quite mm-hmm. a good cry. Oh, I think I know what you're talking. I think I've seen this. In 1988, he was invited to this yes. BBC program that was called That's Life. And they sat him in the front row of this program. Uh, and they were talking to them. The The host was talking to him. And they were saying what all he did. Because he went a long time not even being recognized for what he had done. Except for by, but a lot of people knew And the audience behind him was just filled with these children who were either the people he had actually saved or like related to the people he'd actually saved. Yeah. And it was older, older, not really children, but yeah, they were. Oh yeah. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. They were adults. (laughs) Yeah. uh, And it was, it was just filled and he didn't know they were going to be there. Mm, He just thought it was part of the crowd. Like he's just there in the crowd. Yeah. Yeah. And she, and she, uh, I think it was a, and the host, said, hey, if, if he affected your life or whatever, please stand up. And everybody in the audience stood up, and she had him look around. It will make you cry. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's a good one. It's such a great moment. Uh, very unforgettable. Uh, but these were just only some. I mean, I was reading where, like, um, uh, gosh, what's the actress, actress's name? Aubrey Hepburn? Is that her name? Yeah. yeah like, yeah. a very famous one. Like, she did a lot of heroic stuff during the war. That you don't even hear about because she was an actress. Like I didn't even know any of this stuff because uh, I wanted the reason I didn't cover her because I kind of want to do her for a, a history creeps thing because uh, I thought that she deserved her own stuff from all the stuff I read. Uh, yeah, but there's nice. there's so many people who did so many great things, and I think it's really important to remember that even in these dark times when terrible things are happening, there's always lights there, and, they, and sometimes you have to look for them, but they are there. Yeah. That's right, dude. That's great. That video is amazing. If people haven't seen that, Creepers, I know we're creepy, right? We like the creepy stuff, but that the, the warm-hearted stuff is great, too, and you really need a lot of that in your life. You don't, you can't have just inundation of nonstop negativity. So yeah. look it up, man. Look it up on YouTube. It is it is a very, very heartwarming, touching video. Yeah, it. I remember seeing it not too long ago, and that's kind of what sparked this idea to do this was that video, actually, mm-hmm. and it just really hit me. Uh, I think it's just because I'm just looking for some for anything positive right now, and <laughs> yeah. that was something I really needed to see. So I, I highly you. recommend it. Um, yeah, it's it's pretty incredible to see, and just and just like the human reactions there. Uh, 
it makes you feel better about humanity sometimes when you start questioning it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's people like him that make you just go, you know, it's like this other video I just saw recently. Um, this It was this old guy. He's like an 89-year-old pizza driver. Have you seen this a delivery driver? And a family caught him on their, their ring cam. Uh, well, basically, during a conversation, he's a super nice, sweet guy. And then after a while, every time he came, the ring cam would capture their conversations. And they started uploading it on TikTok. And people on TikTok just flipped over this guy. They absolutely loved him. They thought he was great. The family got to learn know him a little bit through these things. Um, through conversation and found out that he's 89 and he's he's doing this you know he picks up four to six shifts a week so he can continue to make his 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 bills and pay bills and things so the people who ran the tiktok decided let's try to do something let's try to raise up some money they raised over twelve thousand dollars for the guy wow he couldn't believe it he's like people from the internet <laughs> he's like the <laughs> internet they're like yeah they love you you know um Man. Dude, yeah, we we need stuff like that because it is it's dark right now. So definitely check out those videos out there if you get a chance to. Yeah, feel free to link me to any uh, positive videos. I love watching them. So yeah, um, same. Yeah, uh, like uh, there's that uh, Twitter account. I think it's Dodo or something like that. It's a lot of animal inspired ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those, yeah, those are almost awesome. all. Yeah, those almost all always make me cry. Um, I, I love animals and yeah. and uh, but yeah, it's. Man, we we just need light during this, yeah. and there's always light to find. You just sadly sometimes you really have to look for. It. And I look for these things, especially when I catch myself like it's you know social media is good and bad, but it's really easy to find a lot of negative stuff on there. Oh, easily, yeah. And just seeing so many people just hate, 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 just yeah, hating yeah. on each other and just having a lot of hate because you know we can't get along and all this kind of stuff, and you know get. So I was like, I need something, and it, this stuff just helps. So. Yeah, uh, but uh, that's all I got, Chris. You got anything else? I'm good too, man. <coughs> Excuse me, gotta stop smoking <laughs> them cigarettes. Uh, I'm gonna go hit those lights, lock the windows, and head out of the clubhouse, dude. I'm good to go. All right, and while he's doing that, I invite all of you, all of you beautiful, stunning, gorgeous, I orgasm <laughs> <laughs> listeners to just you know, uh, possibly if you can. Just stay on.